Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Steer is back. Working from work, picking dog hair from her clothing. I'm not. No. <laughs> Thanks um, very much. Yeah. Uh, does he shed? Uh, he, well, yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he does. So you probably are. <laughs> Uh, is this, I don't know if this could be too much of a thing. Someone emailed to say, I only listen to the podcast to find out yeah, about Al. Yeah. So it's probably not becoming too much of a thing. How is Alf? Give the people what they want. Um, yeah, Alf, you, you were banging on about him in the lift on the way here. <laughs> yeah. Alf is Alf is a joy. He's yep. Yeah, he's every hour he seems to be getting more of a character. He's he's Does a he sleep, total joy. Sleep well? He sleeps. He doesn't like bedtime. No. He 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 knows it's happening. He knows it's coming, and he he tries to prevent it. Yeah. Uh, but then he he reluctantly gives in and yeah. yeah. And he's ha- very very happy in the morning and when it's is, over. And this is your first day without him. This is yeah, this is the first day. How's he coping, it? do you think? I I think he's fine. He has a he has a sock that he's very fond of, so that'll keep him busy. Matt is suggesting <laughs> that we have a dog cam. Do you do you, you should do that. Have you has your uh fella he is sent beautiful. You, he's very photogenic. Has he sent you videos? Uh, I have had one video today, yes. <laughs> had a look at it good? Yeah, looks happy. He's running. Major. <laughs> He's a dog. He's they running do, do, do. and his fur is flowing. It's oh my stunning. <laughs> right, enough of that. The dog's all right too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember, you should be subscribing to the TLS to help support all of our unquenchable desire to bring you the best cultural writing in the world and to support Thea's domestic <laughs> felicity also. Google TLS subscription now. This week, we've been ignoring Edmund Blackadder when he said, we hate the French, we fight wars against the French. Did all those men die in vain on the fields of Agincourt? Was the man who burnt Joan of Arc just wasting good matches? Blackadder also described being French as eating frogs, cruelty to geese and urinating in the street and going to bed with the kitchen sink if it put on a tutu. But we digress. This week, the TLS is devoted, celebrating... French culture. And so is this podcast. And that includes celebrating the 400 year anniversary of the birth of Cyrano de Bergerac. Who was he? Why did he not come from Bergerac? And should we stop talking about his nose? 
Amazingly, Serrano was a playwright born just three years before Moliere, whose literary fame is rather more secure. Muriel Zaga will tell us about the man and the latest version of Tartuffe playing in London. Plus, we'll hear a poem by Stephen Knight about the four most chilling words in the English language, rail replacement bus service. It's easy to think of Serrano de Bergerac metonymically, a large protuberant nose, the flounce of a feathery hat, the swashbuckling gait of a swordsman. That is the figure, as David Coward notes, from the bilges of literature, endlessly replicated since Edmund Rostand's play of 1897 as a multitudinous procession of self-sacrificing sozies who write poems for tongue-tied rivals to mouth to Roxanne. Did you know what sozie meant? No, I didn't. Double, like a doppelganger. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, great word. I'm going to use it in ordinary conversation. But there was a real Serrano born in Paris 400 years ago this year. He does seem to have had something of a redoubtable nasal presence, which he may or may not have been sensitive about. A large nose, he sighed, is the mark of a clever, courteous, affable, generous-spirited and liberal man. A small nose indicates the opposite. But a nose is a nose is a nose, as someone nearly said, and our hero should indeed have offered rather more to posterity than that. In Coward's terms, nobody should be famous for having a nose, and the real Serrano has other claims on our attention, not least of which is his status as a bad boy of French literature. This week we resurrect, a concept of which Serrano was not a fond adherent, a figure filled with imagination and intellectual boldness, a rebel spirit in a conformist age. I say we, but actually David Coward has been triumphantly doing the resurrecting and he joins Thea and me on the line now. David, hello. Hello. Before we get to the reality, which is fascinating, um, what is the popular image of Serrano? Where does it come from? If we, if we asked a person in the street, what would they say about Serrano, do you think? Well, they'd probably say who, but um, <laughs> the, the general idea, I think, is that he was a rather strange man, uh, full of poetry... Uh, full of ideas, a very strong wrist to fight his enemies. Uh, And the general idea, I think, is that he was a man who was considered himself to be unattractive to women, but was able to woo them with his words. And since he could not woo any real women, he allowed himself to uh, woo them by proxy, by giving poems and letters to his rivals to read to, uh, to to the woman he loved himself. So he's a very tragic figure. I mean, in, in some versions, uh, there's, a, there's a very good film with Gérard Depardieu, yeah. who, could pl- who could play anything, and he makes it all very convincing. But, I mean, there are some versions of it, which are, well, there's, a, there's a Hollywood version of about 1950, that I remember, as Oscar Wilde said, um, it would take a heart of stone not to laugh. <laughs> And he probably didn't have that big a nose. We've 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 done a picture of him, and he's he's got a bit of a honk, but it's not. I mean, I'm not sure he'd even remark upon it if you if you met him in the street. Well, I think he was he was sensitive about it because I think he sort of uh, he duelled with enemies who made uh, made observations about his nose. Uh, but uh, no, I think it, it was uh, it was a you know that much of an image. I mean, it's uh, Rostand made of it, I think, and he he converted. Uh, 
poor old Cyrano into a kind of romantic hero who was more more at home in the 1820s and 30s in French theatre than he was in real life. And he wasn't from Bergerac, is that true? No, not, not at all. Bergerac is a town in the southwest of France, whereas the, the Bergerac of his name came from a, a rather small uh, estate that his fa- family owned somewhere near Paris, just southwest of Paris. But the town has taken him over, of course. He's a great tourist attraction. They've got a, a couple of statues there, not just one, but two, uh, which does, does them quite a lot of good. But, I mean, that has transformed him into, you know, a man of the of the southwest, a Gascon, famous for, mm. for poetry, famous for sword fighting, a kind of d'Artagnan. But um, in reality, he wasn't like that at all. He was very much immersed in the, in the Parisian scene, wasn't he? Well, yes. I mean, he was born in Paris. Uh, he wanted to make his way. He didn't have all that much money, and uh, he thought he might be able to do it um, as a soldier, but he got wounded in a couple of sieges he fought at, and then he realised that he was too poor to buy himself uh, rank in the army, and so he tried to live by his pen, which wasn't very easy to do, especially since he had he had ideas which were contrary to the to the general tenor of the time. Well, I want to talk about that because you talk about his intellectual boldness and you say he was a bad boy of French literature. What were his ideas? What, what, what should we know about him? Well, in the 1630s and 1640s, France was slowly emerging from the, the medieval idea that the whole of the universe and all that there is in could be understood only in terms of religion. And in the 1620s, 30s, there was a small movement of minds which said that, well, perhaps this wasn't such a good idea after all, and that why not, uh, why, why not sort of try and understand the world through science, through reason. And he said, reason is my queen. And he, he used his uh, observation, uh, his judgment, to contradict the ideas of uh, religion and, of course, that set him on a, a difficult course with the church. I mean, he didn't have terribly many positive ideas, actually, because when you think of it, most, most of his ideas are negative. He denied the creation. He, didn't, he said that there was no soul, there's no need for a god, that the universe is made of a very complicated structure of which the earth is not the centre Uh, The earth circulates the sun. The earth spins on its own axis. I mean, he he made all of these major statements going further than Descartes did even in terms of just saying there was no God. But he wasn't a scientist. Was he mostly just reading? No, he he did it all through his imagination. imagination. I mean, it's not really until the 1750s, the middle of the 18th century, that you have uh, the experimental method uh, of, of in science, in scientific inquiry, becoming uh, the, the norm. That is to say that people observed uh, and then they drew conclusions from observations. Before then, they put down ideas and said, well, this, is must, this, is, this seems quite likely, therefore it is what is. But he was right, uh, wasn't he? I mean, in a lot of these things, I mean, I mean uh, we might have a debate about whether or not there's a God, but he's right about the, the Earth not being the centre of a universe. He's right potentially that the soul's not immortal, the Bible can't be trusted. These are all things that modernity has cheerfully accepted. Well, I think that's right. And this is perhaps a part of the problem that uh, poor old Cyrano has. I mean, his major battles were won long, long ago. And so what is left of Cyrano is his nose. But why is he not known as a tremendous 
independent mind and you know revolutionary thinker of his age because presumably this is a risky time to be doing i mean do, do we know whether the church threatened to 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 go after him for for these ideas as you say oh, in the well of well now there i mean the, the, the manner of his death is quite interesting because he either died of syphilis um which he contracted in about 1645 apparently or of a large piece of wood which fell on his head now it was said that the jesuits had been responsible for this uh, to get uh, to get him out of the way because they couldn't answer his uh, his arguments, uh, so they decided to remove him. I mean, the Jesuits um, had a had a terrible reputation <laughs> because um, you know it is said that Molière died on stage um, during yes. the, the Maladie Imaginaire. Well, there is a story, um, uh, if I may tell it. It yeah. goes like this: that um, he wasn't he didn't die of natural causes on stage. He was dragged by the Jesuits, who then carted him off and put him in a cell, the cell that became known as the cell inhabited by the man in the iron mask, because he had to be masked because everybody recognized him, you see. Now, uh, Moliere, being a resourceful sort of chap, uh, chummed up with the jailer's daughters. It always happens in these prison stories. <laughs> it's almost certainly and, not a true story, and, is it, David? And, and they took off together and ended up down in the south of France. But he changed his name for obvious reasons when Moliere was quite well known. And he called himself Monsieur Bonpart. Um, but even the south of France was too hot, so they, they went further. They ended up in Corsica, where the name became Italianized to Buonaparte. Nah. And when Napoleon <laughs> uh, came to power in 1793, this story was re- resurrected. And he didn't deny it because it was quite useful to him politically, uh, because it meant that he was a descendant of someone who had been set upon by uh, by the evil um, evils of monarchy and the Catholic Catholic Church. That is a magnificent story. Funny enough, your, your piece in the paper this week is next to a, a, a piece by Julia Press with the headline, Imaginary Moliere's and how tall stories uh, gather themselves around Moliere. That's ah, a, that is a fan- there we are. And that is a, a, a fantastic one. It, you mentioned him having syphilis. He also, uh, this is back to Serrano now, said chastity cannot be a virtue since God ordained sexual congress. Otherwise, we would all just spring up in May like grass and roses. So because sex existed, it must be what God wanted. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, so he was libertarian in that sense. I mean, that's one. He, that's why he's one of the, the bad boys of, of, uh, of French literature. And I mean, and as a poet, not that he was much of a poet, really. Um, he comes between about halfway between Villon and Rambo. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about him as a writer, because it's interesting, because he was a playwright, a poet, and are these kind of short stories he wrote as well? Yes, well, these, uh, these, these well, they were kind of philosophical stories, just like Candide, that, that kind of thing, you know, where, where some kind of truth is being uh, put across in, uh, in, the, in the garb of, uh, of an interesting story. Uh, and his, his his stories were designed actually to put forward these ideas that we've been talking about. You know, the, the anti-religion uh, that the uh, that the planets are in 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 are worlds which are inhabited just like ours. Why not? Um, if God could make the soul immortal, why could not God make a multiplicity, indeed, an infinity of worlds? And he actually, there's something when I read read your piece, a sort of Da Vinci-esque thing here, isn't he? Because he's thinking. Well, of all- that's right. He, I mean, he, he had no scientific training. He was not really aware of scientific principles. 
it guessed some of them, like uh, gra gravity. He was quite quite clean on the idea of, uh, of gravity. But he might equally well have said that you know there is no such thing as gravity. Uh, and that the reason that we don't fall off the world is not because we are attracted by gravity to it, but because we are being repelled by the rest of the universe. I mean, that was exactly the way in which his mind worked. It's a, so why, I mean, just finally, David, I suppose, why this, this fascinating man with all of these modern ideas, why do you think he has become associated with the way he has? Is, is it just the power of that theatrical presentation at the end of the... 19th century or, or, or I think reason? so I think I mean there were there were I mean French literature is full of um, uh, full of people who had very strange and very amusing ideas uh, and in fact were many in many cases were were groundbreakers but in fact they weren't in the right place at the right time no one paid attention to them they were from the wrong social class they didn't make a hit they had no proper patron to to push them there are all sorts of reasons of that sort of contingent nature yeah. that explains why these people have been forgotten. Oh Well, I'm so glad uh, you've taken the opportunity to remind us all about him. Uh, David Carroll, thank you very much indeed. OK, thanks very much. That is kind of extraordinary, there, when you just listen to all of these things that he was thinking mm. of. Because you and I were saying on the way here, I thought of a nose. I, I, I think I've watched the Gerard Depardieu thing, but yeah. I can't remember anything about it. Yeah. I can think of Roxanne, yeah. uh, the Steve Martin movie, where the Steve Martin had a ridiculously, really ridiculously yeah. long nose. Yeah. There's, um, there's an A.L. Kennedy novel from a few years ago, So I Am Glad, uh, and it's, it's based in, in modern Glasgow, I think okay. it is, or Edinburgh. No, Glasgow, yeah. Uh, and uh, he arrives... Cyrano arrives as this kind of figure in her house share and he glows in the dark and so that's that's another that's another uh, it sounds like he'd have liked that Cyrano. it sounds like he would have liked that but I just want you to go through the, he's basically imagining all these things which turn out to be true yeah He's, uh, yeah, but what about all of the things that he must have imagined that turned out not to be true? But that's good as well. well I no, exactly. Yeah, I so it's his un unbridled imagination, yeah, some uh, of which has has turned out right, and some of which, some of which isn't, presumably uh, hasn't. Like the uh, what is it? The cage to ascend into the into the sky, which involves throwing a magnet yeah, that or, works with the cage and draws the cage up. Or by, by fastening flasks of dew about his person and standing <laughs> yeah. in the morning sun until he ascends on its warming. I can't. I mean, sure. that would that's be beautiful. That would be, I know. <laughs> good luck trying that. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you in association with Harvard University Press and an appropriately themed book of theirs. In Catherine and Diderot, The Empress, The Philosopher and The Fate of the Enlightenment, Robert Zaretsky traces the lives of Catherine the Great and the philosopher Denis Diderot. Denis or Denis? Denis. Denis Diderot, thank you, Thea, inviting us to reflect on the fraught relationship between politics and philosophy and between a man of thought and a woman of action. And we reviewed it in the paper last week and Leslie Chamberlain called it beautifully organised and very readable, which is happy, actually, because if she'd absolutely slated it, this would have been a rather <laughs> awkward link. But she didn't. She really liked it. So that's very good. Listeners of the TLS podcast can order a copy of Catherine and Diderot at the special price of £15. The RRP is £20 plus postage and packaging by emailing info at harvardup.co.uk and quoting TLS podcast. That's info at harvardup.co.uk. Moliere is undoubtedly France's most famous playwright. No other works are as frequently performed by the Comédie Française as his are, and no other French playwright has been so successfully and consistently exported. No wonder, perhaps, that the French language itself is known as the language of Moliere. But he was not always so smoothly a part of the establishment. When Tartuffe first appeared in 1664, it caused a scandal, was banned by the church, and saw the Archbishop of Paris promise excommunication for anyone caught watching reading or performing in the play. One particularly incensed curate called Moliere a demon clad in flesh and dressed up as a man. Mm. Now, a new production of that play adapted by John Donnelly and directed by Blanche McIntyre aims to rekindle the anti-establishment fire. Muriel Zaga went along to the National Theatre in London to see this modern Tartuffe and she joins us here in the studio to tell us more. Welcome. Hello. So as well as being France's most famous playwright, a piece that we have in the paper by Julia Prest, um, she's reviewing a new biography, uh, she claims that he's also the most fictionalised of the French playwrights uh, because so much of his life has been misdocumented or, or misrepresented. What, what do we know about his life? Well, I suppose there's a Shakespeare parallel there um, because yeah. because he is so much so fundamental to uh, the French's sort of consciousness about themselves that it's probably very tempting to fasten upon the more uh, colourful anecdotes or apocryphal stories. Um, I grew up believing that uh, Moliere had died on stage and I think a lot of actors, French actors and other actors, uh, live their whole careers with that sort of goal in mind because because of this Moliere story. It's such a great story. It's a great story. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you the David Coward story that we've just heard, which is that he didn't die on stage. He's arrested for... Uh, terrible uh, his his terrible beliefs uh, anti-religious beliefs he goes he's put in the, the same cell that previously held the man in the iron mask and wore an iron mask and wore an iron mask because everyone was. knew him oh. he then escapes with the jailer's daughter they go down <laughs> to the south of France <laughs> they then go from down and call themselves Bonpart yeah. they go from the south of France to Corsica where Bonpart becomes Bonaparte and then when Napoleon rocks up it's it's Napoleon is seen to have been descended from the great Moliere the great anti-religious figure so the story rollicks on yeah that so that doesn't sound plausible does yeah, it? I mean, it doesn't <laughs> but I suppose truth is sometimes stranger than fiction yeah but also 
sometimes things are just made up. But, yes. it's, an <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting point that, this, that these stories attached him. You're not surprised that stories... So why? Why is he so significant to French culture that stories would, would cling to him? Just? Well, he is the entry point when you're an 11-year-old child. Your entry point into French literature is usually a Molière play, and that's... That's where you begin to learn about literature with really? Molière. Yes, whereas I think perhaps Shakespeare is considered more difficult. Uh, Molière is difficult, but there's no accident that um, good French is, is known as la langue de Molière because there is a, a sort of limpidity about Molière's language, which means that he is funny in a funny sort of way, very accessible, in spite of all the complicated historical context, so social context that needs to be re-explained for every generation. I remember as a child being dumbfounded when I realized that in the 17th century, girls would be married off to whomever their parents chose. That was that had become a completely alien concept. But it's Moliere is where you come to refresh yourself and reconnect with those ideas. It's presumably so much of, of, of his, the accessibility of him for school children as well is, is farce, is, is just... Physical it's, comedy. Exactly. Hysterical and, <laughs> and are, they, are they funny? Because the great knock, if you're a child learning Shakespeare, is here are this is the the, the the cliche, which is largely true, I think, particularly when you read it on the page. Here is a comedy, you will never laugh at it. <laughs> uh, and that's when, if you're an 11 year old child in in Britain in English, that's kind of what you, you feel. Now, you might go to a play and they manage to work it, and they can get, you know, I've been to Midsummer Night's Dream, which are laugh, you know, tears rolling down your face, funny, but it's very hard to see that sometimes on the page with Shakespeare. Is that true of Molière, or do you know straight away when you come to this is funny stuff? I think it is funny stuff. I was, I was one of those children who was taken to the Comédie Francaise um, probably once a month to see everything in the repertoire, and so I, I saw a lot of Molière production when I was growing up and uh, they are hilariously funny I think it's very easy to just let the language tell you what to do as an actor performing Molière and I did in fact once when I was a student play the role of the hypochondriac oh, <laughs> in <did> drag you? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I can I can relate firsthand what it's like it's really the language tells you what to do. The actions are there. It comes straight from Commedia dell'arte. So it really is about falling about uh, and hiding under tables and listening at doors and being discovered and, you know, all that, all, all that kind of business. Uh, I think it, that's what makes him accessible. The, the issue is often the social conventions, which is so different, mm. which is why adaptation and Molière himself was a great adaptator, of course, a literary adaptator, which is why adaptation and modernization is probably a strong temptation to make him even more available. Because he's dealing with types, isn't he? I mean, it, it, so, so although the context, the, the, the religious context, the same is true of Serrano, just talking about that, that the pressures of the age, the, 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 the absolute um, clamour for uh, orthodoxy, having to fit in, having to follow the church's guidance. We've moved a very long way away, away from that, but there's, there's still types that, that subsist. I mean, the great type of... The hypocrites, which in Tartuffe and... The hypocrite and, and the gull, you yeah. know, the very gullible... Uh, I was listening the other day, listening back to another one of your podcasts where there was mention of, of Goop, of Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. <laughs> Don't uh, start us off no. on that. <laughs> what did you make no, of that? Are you, are you anti-Goop or pro-Goop? Goop is a very interesting object. <laughs> Cultural object, is it not? Yes, uh, it, it Probably if it didn't exist, someone else would have invented it. Mm. But um, a Molière character might have invented it. I can see a line <laughs> <laughs> between some of Molière's characters and a certain kind of preciousness. And uh, yeah. Yes, definitely. 
the types are still with us. I think that's why the uh, story of Tartuffe is, uh, is still very alive, is because hypocrisy is with us all around. And perhaps it's one of the reasons why the play has been revived more recently in Britain, I think. In France, it's always on. Essentially, there's always a theatre showing it. But here, really? I think because of America, because of other... Uh, political events that the, there's been um, a draw towards the story of an imposter, of someone who wears the mask and, and sort of befuddles you into believing all kinds of nonsense. Well, so let's talk about this new adaptation then, um, directed by John Donnelly. Uh, it's set in modern day London. What, what, what's its take? Um, so it's set in modern-day London. It's set in Highgate specifically. So it's uh, set among the great and the good uh, of North London in a very lavish house. And Orgon is a very successful businessman who has dabbled in political, financial, murky dealings before what they call the last war. So we have to infer what that what that means. And what does um, it mean? The crash, financial crash. I or? imagine so. I think yeah. that's probably where. And uh, and then. As in the original, Tartuffe was originally a vagrant, really a beggar, uh, whom Orgon takes into his house. And I think nowadays, with um, the, a strong preoccupation with homelessness, with an ever-widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, then the figure of Tartuffe as some, one of the have-nots who is pressing his face against the window... Uh, and in fact, the production begins like this. The, before the curtain rises, what we see is um, uh, silhouettes through the windows of Orgon's house. So we are very much in that position ourselves in the audience. And he's pressing his face against the window and looking at all these lovely things that he should have and has been denied just because he's been unlucky in the lottery of life. So that's, that's, been for, that's strongly foregrounded. Uh, and then throughout the play, other homeless women, men trickle in silently, and set up camp in the drawing room silently, but in a fairly menacing way, in a way that speaks of a day of reckoning. So I think that is what we're being told. And then it's not an uninteresting take. Where it's perhaps a little too forced, I think, is with the ending, where uh, in the original play, the ending of Tartuffe is, a, is very famous. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the king, who has not been mentioned, uh, intervenes out of the ether, and there are no... None of those wonderful 17th century machines in Tartuffe, but there ought to be, you know, a cloud machine with a radiant sun king descending upon the stage to stop the misunderstanding, stop the injustice, remove Tartuffe, restore the property to his, its rightful owner. In this version, because Tartuffe is one of the dispossessed and we are asked to feel something on his behalf, the intervention comes from the old boys' networks of the establishment to to restitute property that is actually not, not lawfully organs. So so the just the sense of justice is, is rather different in this one than it would be in, it, in the original. In, in the, it's almost, really, almost like inverted. Almost mm. inverted. Uh, and that is interesting. I couldn't help thinking, however, that we were sitting in the august confines of the National Theatre yeah. and we were ourselves, <laughs> you know, looking around, um, I didn't see many of the dispossessed sitting in the stalls. No. And I, it was, uh, there was something a little uncomfortable about being asked as the audience to join in with this 
moment of piety, of social piety, and what we would call nowadays virtue signaling, mm. uh, and then go home to our comfortable homes without giving it another thought because we had been given absolution by the by the play. That's the but, thing. But, that but that is me. that is is that not very much a kind of a Moliere sort of device in a sense to kind of directly involve the audience in that way to unsettle and to yes point to, up the the hypocrisy. Th- that's true. Where I had a small resistance was that I thought the play had become the production, which has a lot of merit, by the way. It's very funny, pacey, smartly done. The cast are all excellent. The language is very limber. You know, all of that is good. But the play is in danger of becoming infected itself by tartufferie or hypocrisy in that moment and absolving itself of really engaging with the difficulty of the, the ideological context of the play, which is complicated. And is, would that not have happened in the original because the framework was more straightforward in that, in that sense? You kind of know where, the, you know where the lines are. That's true. On the other hand, at the time, I think one of the objections to uh, Tartuffe at the time was that it wasn't the place of comedy specifically to teach moral lessons. Right. So that was another axis of difficulty where Molière was criticised. One of the things that people... If you ever modernise Shakespeare and you take away the language, you're kind of left with nothing as an argument. Shakespeare is all the language, and contained in the language is everything of Shakespeare, and if you remove that, you might as well not bother uh, at all. Obviously, with a translation and an adaptation, you are going to lose the language, but you know the original, you've heard this one. You know It has lines like, nobody's on Facebook anymore apart from divorcees and pedos. <laughs> Just to, you quoted that, Mio, so I, I feel happy <laughs> quoting it. But So pick that as a line and then consider the original. Do you feel precious about the original? Do you feel, I can't believe you've done that? Or is that within the spirit of it? What, what do you feel about that? I think it's as well to be robust about these things. And it's great and it's very bold to drag a play like that, kicking and screaming into <laughs> the present day. It is perhaps a shame not to measure yourself against the verse. It's a shame. Have you uh, seen it done in English in verse? There was a Hampton, uh, Christopher Hampton adaptation, the first one, not the more recent one, but I think the the older one, which I saw years ago, that was in verse. And Hampton is, um, I think, a writer who enjoys playing with those uh, conventions. Whereas in this production, and it is actually quite a clever take, most of the play is in prose. The character of Marianne's lover, Valère, who is a... Uh, poet, pugilist, street poet in this, and probably a graffiti artist as well, although we don't see any evidence of that, but that's what I imagine he does in his spare time, says quite firmly that he's against rhyme because it's a fascist construct. So I don't know that this reflects the writer's uh, own ideas. But then then what happens is uh, verse comes back at the very end when the police comes in, comes on stage and order is restored. So that's an interesting illustration of the fascisme de la langue, you know, at that particular point. It's funny in the moment. I would have liked something a little bit more cuisiné, you know, where we would have engaged with uh, the difficulty of the verse a little bit more. Yeah. Is it ever done completely traditionally? Because Shakespeare now, again, to keep the parallel, it, it's pretty rare, unless you go to the Globe or, or whatever, to get Shakespeare done. It really annoys me because all the people tend to do in Shakespeare is put it in an unnamed Balkan country, give everyone guns <laughs> and make them look a bit fascist. And that's you think, oh that's, oh, that's modern Shakespeare, is it? I saw an Anthony and Cleopatra, it, it sent me mad because they don't change the language. So they're talking about 
swords and sailing and stuff like that, and they're driving their tanks and waggling their guns yeah, around. It's completely think, well, incongruous. Yeah, why are you doing this? I remember seeing uh, the Merry Wives of Windsor's of Windsor years and years ago, done is in a sort of rockabilly 1950s production <laughs> with pink Cadillacs and so on, and it was it was well done, but you kept wondering why on earth? Why are we doing this? Uh, Does does Molière get that same treatment? Uh, Molière gets the same treatment, uh, especially in the Festival d'Avignon, usually. (laughs) There's always a a crazy take on Molière. The Comédie Française, thank goodness, continues to keep him in in his juices, you know, and produce Mm. him fairly regularly in costume. Um, Yes, because... Are they very strict like that? They're not that strict, but I think they are... Along the lines of the Académie Française, they are one of those institutions whose job it is to preserve and conserve the uh, repertoire. That's so French, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 the idea of the preser- preserving role of the of the academy is, course, is, 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 is very French. Um, so, okay, final question then. What Molière would you like us to do next in this country if we were going to do another one? Well, that's a really difficult question. Um, I love Les Fourberies de Scapin. Uh, it's probably one of the most Italian Molière plays. I don't think it's been done very recently, or if it has, it's passed me by. What would but that be in English? The betrayals, perhaps, of Scapin. Yeah. Scapin is the servant. Uh, so this is the name of the servant who's in the, which is in the in the title, and he is a wonderfully uh, crafty servant, yeah. and it's all about the way he outplays his master. So that's always quite fun to watch. And there's a lot of physical comedy in that. It is, in fact, the first play I was ever taken to see as a as a school uh, girl. And we we all had a wonderful time. So that would be... Well, let's have that, please. Yes. Yeah, I think <laughs> if this podcast is influential, which it isn't. <laughs> yeah. But if it were to be influential, wouldn't it be great? <laughs> we'll see you next season. So next season, that place there. And we can all discuss it. Lovely. Mio Zaga, thank you so much. Thank you. Poetry time now on the podcast. This week, a meditation on those four chilling words. Rail, replacement, bus, service. It's by this poet, Stephen Knight. It's a beautifully controlled and obviously melancholic affair. And Stephen is on the line to read it to us. Stephen, hello. Hello. Tell us the gloomy thinking behind the poem before we hear it, Stephen. What, oh. what, 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 what brought you here and will bring many other people to the same place when they read it? Well, I use trains quite a lot, and that's enough in itself to justify this poem, probably, isn't it? Um, I travel through London Bridge to work at Goldsmiths, so that has its own trials, I think. <laughs> there is a melancholy here, isn't there? Because, uh, which I think all of us have experienced. Um, um, on a train, yes. Uh, 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 on a train. It used to be a sign of progress, the train, didn't it, I suppose, in the Victorian era? Now it's just yeah. a sign of depression. No, not anymore. No, sadly, no. I've I've travelled on too many trains in the past few years to ever see it as any kind of liberating or um, like those adverts in the what was it in the eighties with the sit back and relax and play chess and no, yeah. <laughs> no. That's if they turn up at all. Yeah, well, quite if they turn up at all. Well, I feel lots of people are going to have a reaction uh, uh, to this, Stephen. Perhaps you might read it to us now. Yes. Okay. Rail replacement bus service. We wait behind the yellow line. The tannoy diagnoses countless ills. The wind along the platform chills. The trains that stop are never mine. Only the hopeless disembark. All day, the sun, before the sun went down, smeared its light all over town. Behind the yellow line, it's dark. Behind the yellow line, it's late. The southbound birds have given up their songs. The night 
is where the night belongs. Buckets and mops procrastinate. Behind the yellow line, it rains. It rains enough to build a biggish sea. The rainfall only falls on me. The tannoy up above explains inaudibly the long delay in words both crackly and grey to those who should or should not stay. The yellow line will never say. That's all we have time uh, for this week. Our thanks go to Stephen Knight, David Coward and Muriel Zaga. Make sure you're subscribing to the paper. We really do try and make it as good as we can. Don't we, Thea? We do. We do. (laughs) Next week's edition is a monster 52-page spring book special. So we're going to have lots to talk about on the podcast, I promise. Until then, from Thea and from me, au revoir. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.